Come on, nation. What up? What up? What up, everyone? Welcome to episode 197. You heard that right. Episode 197 of Combo's Court. And I am Combo. Go rate, review, and punch down on that subscribe button wherever you listen to Combo's Court, man. Today's show, Jacob Goldstein joins in. Jacob is the creator of PIPM, that's Player Impact Plus Minus. A great conversation with Jacob. Can't wait for you all to hear it. You could find Jacob on Twitter at Jacob E. Goldstein. That's J-A-C-O-B-E-G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N. You know you could find me on Instagram at 1-2-Combo. That's O-N-E. T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O, intro music by Luca Beats, let's get into it. Jacob Goldstein, creator of PIPM, Player Impact Plus Minus. Welcome to Combos, Corman. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling good. Thank you for having me. I'm really, really excited to talk about hoops, especially with where it is right now with, you know, one last game in uh, the Western semis and, and pretty much teeing up what should be two pretty good uh, conference, conference final series on both sides. So for exciting sure, for time. Sure. Good little pause almost. A lot of good basketball going on. You're not wrong on that one. We'll get to that. Uh, before we do, can you briefly describe um, what PIPM is? Um, what were your goals you wanted to reach when you created it? It's a little bit more predictive in its nature. How's mm-hmm. it been going for you, man? Yeah, sure. So, so for those who don't know, PIPM is the all-in-one player metric I put together. It stands for player impact plus minus, which you know, makes a lot of sense because we're trying to measure players impacts using plus minus data and, and the box score as well. So it essentially uh, was, you know, inspired by, for those of you familiar with other advanced stats and RAPM regularized adjusted plus minus, uh, which is sort of one of the earlier stats put together, which is still, you know, very regularly used in the all in one space. Um, and, you know, somewhat also of an RPM inspired it as well, which is taking kind of this uh, plus minus, forum for building a metric and adding additional data such as box score data to it to uh, more accurately predict what a player is doing because you know the the box score does have a lot of value so um, I I saw these metrics and wanted to create my my own mostly as a sort of way of getting into the basketball analytics space and teaching myself a lot of different skills I know I would need uh, as a data scientist at some point um, mm-hmm. so it just, to me was a really good project for learning a lot. And it turned out to be a really good, useful metric as, as an output, but you know, that's not always the case. So it was a little fortunate in that regard. Um, but essentially it takes two main components, a box score component. So your traditional uh, blocks, rebounds, three point attempts, three point percent, 
et cetera, kind of the traditional stuff that you see in any box score when you go to an ESPN or an NBA.com. And it combines it with luck adjusted on off data, which is trying to remove as much noise and variance as possible from what happens uh, when you're on court at the team level and what happens when you're off court at the team level. So an issue um, that an RAPM or RPM or even just general raw plus minus data can run into is there's a lot of variance in what goes on in the court. And, and specifically threes and free throws are a great example of that. So the way I always explain what a luck adjustment is, is you can't really control how your opponent shoots from the free throw line when you're on defense. You know, you can somewhat control who you foul in regards to if you foul uh, an Andre Drummond, you know, that's probably a smarter foul than uh, Steph Curry, you know. Right. But largely speaking, once they're at the line, what actually happens is out of your hands. So the, the simplest way to that I explain a luck adjustment or a variance adjustment, which is maybe more apt of a name, is to say it's accounting for the fact that that player might shoot two of two from the free throw line and they might shoot zero of two from the free throw line. That's not really indicative of how the team is performing defensively when you're on court or off court because that's really out of your hands. And, and obviously I think that's the most clear example of you really cannot control what's, if they're going to make those free throws or not for the most part. Um, but that can sort of be applied across the entire on-court and off-court data spectrum at the team level to essentially more quickly estimate what your real on-off-court value is to this team if you played a billion possessions over the course of the season. Um, so then it'll take this box score component, and it'll take this variance-adjusted on-off component and blend them together to, to come up with a final player rating of how much you're impacting the team and, and specifically how much you're impacting the team based off what you're actually asked to do. So that's why you often see a role player rate really well um, is because they, they might be perfectly optimized to do those. You just play defense and make threes, and they're asked to do that, and they're great at that. But if you ask them to do something else, be a primary initiator, it would completely fall apart. So it, it's always important to keep in mind with impact metrics so that they're just measuring how good you are, what you're actually asked to do on the court and not just how good are you at basketball in a whole. But I, I think that's kind of high level of, of what PIPM is and what the goal is. And um, one thing that I think it really excels at compared to something like an RAPM or an RPM is that because of its kind of box score plus on-off component design, you can sort of subset it a little bit more than you can a, a metric based more solely on on and off data or plus minus data um, so it allows you to do something like look at a player's impact against just the top 10 defenses or top 10 offenses or bottom 10 um, or you know the playoff teams they're going to be facing and in that regard kind of get a better sense of how they're going to perform against who they're actually going to be playing rather than just how they how did they do overall so that's just one example I think of something I had in mind when I was designing the metric of being able to subset it more than just season level or career level. Um, and, and I think that's something that it's able to do and, and does quite nicely. What's the feedback been in or is it more gamblers using it? Do you feel NBA teams are using it? I mean, it's a pretty new metric if I'm correct. Uh, what's been the feedback? It's been great. So my, I mean, my background is mostly 
kind of the general front office team analytics perspective. So I, I, I know more people in that space okay. um, and, and getting to talk to them. It is used in MBA front offices, even the smallest amount, which is something that's, you know, crazy to me as someone who did this just for fun out of my bedroom, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah. It, it's mostly used as like, uh, okay, is he, let's, let's get a list of, we need good defenders who can make three. So greater than zero DPI. PM well, I feel like, I feel like every team needs that Jacob, right? <laughs> well, that's very true, but I'm a, more like, uh, it's kind of used like an initial filter for a list of players to then ah, go what deep dive into and really just help filter out. And I think that's probably where it's most useful at this point, at least to a team's perspective is just filtering down to only have to do uh, super in-depth reports on 10 guys instead of 50 guys. Um, from talking to, to people more on the gambling side, I mean, it, it's, it's useful on that end as well. It's, it's certainly in a predictive metric and intended to be able to predict um, how good someone is going to be in the next game and, or a week from now or next year from now. And um, that that's always the goal of the metric. I, I think if something's just telling you uh, purely descriptive, it's, it's a little bit of um, a failed measure in that regard, but I, I'm not as familiar with that end, but it seems to be, you know, it does a good job. Um, holding its own on that front whenever I've seen it put up against BPM, RPM, RAPM, and various predictive uh, tests. Jacob, do you personally feel the pushback against analytics? And what do you feel is the biggest mixed conception when it comes to analytics? I know that's a general question, but I, I'd like to hear mm -hmm. your thoughts on that. Definitely. So I personally don't feel it too much. And I think some of that's because People really will only follow me on Twitter or interact with me on Twitter if they're interested in analytics. So they, they're more inclined to listening to this perspective of, of thought of thinking about basketball from a data-driven perspective or a research-driven perspective. But there are certainly times when I'll have a, a particularly good tweet or, or before the, the season starts, I'll put out you know preseason predictions and whatever team doesn't rate as well or the whatever player doesn't rate as well I'll, I'll get you know analytics is a waste of time from fans of that player or team um but i think just because twitter does a good job at sort of segmenting people to what they actually are interested in i'm able to avoid most of it um as to whether or not it's warranted i think at times it can be a lot analytic people data scientists have a tendency a little bit to say well, the data says X, Y, Z, which isn't really the case. The data doesn't say anything. You as an analyst are interpreting the data and translating it, making yeah. sense of it. Um, so I think a little bit, so there, there are cases where people are too, well, this is what the numbers say. This must be correct and too dead set. And I mean, the numbers said, for instance, that the Milwaukee Bucks were the best team in the NBA and then the Miami Heat embarrassed them. So, you know, it, there, there's certainly cases where, there, there's other interpretation that needs to be done, other context that needs to be done. And that's really the role of a data scientist, of an analyst for an NBA team. Um, a lot of people think analytics means just don't shoot mid-rangers, shoot more threes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's certainly a major oversimplification. It's, a, it's really much more of a mindset of doing the research and the way you think about the game from a data and research-driven perspective rather than just mid-range bad three-point good that that 
is normally how it gets parroted on television uh, when, it, when it's talked about. Yeah, and they don't get into that free throw is good and layup is good as well. They kind of focus on three-pointers. <laughs> right, free throws or, or layups, I should say, are actually, you know, the best shot in basketball. Is right, Actually right. contested at the rim, not 23 feet away. Right, right. Most definitely, most definitely. And uh, let me ask you if this is fair. I notice a lot of people with an analytic perspective, and I come from a playing perspective. I don't come from an analytic perspective at all. Mm-hmm. But um, I've had uh, Ben Taylor on the show, Seth on the show. And I feel like, I mean, a lot of people in the analytic community have a very disciplined and maybe even obsessive personality. So I think a <laughs> lot of people in the analytic community have a great eye test as well. Is that fair? I, I mean, I'm a little biased in agreeing, but I, I would agree. Um, I think it's really hard to be obsessive about a sport in only one way. There's not many people who... Right. I mean, the, the, the common trope is stop watching the spreadsheet or, or watch the game. And I think it's really hard to be a super obsessive about basketball and the process of basketball and learning more and doing all this in-depth research if you don't actually also feel that same way about watching basketball and learning more visually. Um, and, and I think sometimes people who are more analytically focused because they're good at analytics, their eye test is given, you know, some extra weight that it might be necessarily shouldn't be because there are different skills of being able to do data-driven research 100%. versus uh, visual research. But I think there's definitely a misnomer that, that we don't watch basketball, which to me has just always been the funniest thing because, you know, my issue is I probably watch too much basketball. And, <laughs> and most people I know in analytics have that same perspective. And most people I know who work in basketball in general are obsessed about basketball. Otherwise, they you know, wouldn't work all these crazy hours for teams. <laughs> right, right, 100%, 100%. Um, your model really likes uh, Tyrese Halliburton, man. I've been, I've been talking about him a lot on the <laughs> podcast. He's one of my favorite pro- uh, prospects. Him and Anthony Edwards, I say, I really probably talk about the most on this pod. Um, how do you think his mm-hmm. game will translate to the next level, and what are the numbers telling you? I told you, I don't come from an analytic perspective but I do know he was 99th percentile in spot up shooting in the NCAA Mm -hmm. Uh, what are the numbers telling you and how do you think his game will translate and just what's his like ceiling what's the best case scenario when it comes to Tyrese Halliburton I think he's a really fascinating player because he's kind of this ultimate intersection of really efficient in a somewhat more limited role but analytically he's really good at all the things he does um, and, and it's okay that he does them in sort of lower uh, uh, volume necessarily. I mean, I think this year in college, he did step that up a decent amount, which certainly helps. But a lot of the, the – analytically, he's going to rate great. You know, he's super efficient from all levels across all different tournaments. Gets a lot of steals, blocks, doesn't barely commits any fouls. Um, so, you know, very low error rate, really good at making smart plays, really good at – finishing shots two point and three point um so it, to me it's no surprise that you know he rates as this awesome player and and i think this is a really good example of where going to the film sort of it, it really helps you figure out why and also how exactly he'll translate you know he's not necessarily the best at getting to the rim he's not necessarily some crazy athlete and he right. kind of is this ultimate con- complimentary player um which is fascinating to me just to see how he actually performs and does translate to the next level. Because at this point, 
I'm honestly not sure. I could see him working out and being this awesome Swiss Army knife, and I could see it also, you know, master or, or uh, great at everything, master of none, kind of biting him in, in the behind at the end of the day and, and causing it to be his downfall. So I, I, I would love to be able to give you a more specific answer, but that's one I've been waiting pretty much all college season, and now with the draft getting pushed back even further. Uh, every every month seems like another month, but he's a guy I'm really interested in seeing at the next level specifically because of how exactly he will translate when he has great analytical indicators, but there's some clear question marks when watching the film and just seeing how those two mesh at the next level I think will be fascinating. Yeah, my biggest thing with him has nothing to do with the numbers, or maybe it does. Maybe there's a way to quantify this. I just feel like he makes everybody around him better, and he's a winner. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, I 100% agree. I think he's really, really good. Yeah. It's a question of if he's really, really college good or really, really Europe good versus uh, how exactly that'll that'll look at the NBA level. Um, I I think it'll be pretty good. I'd be surprised if it's not, but he's just such a unique player that it's hard to – really say at this point right we started with uh Tyrese Halliburton I don't know if you expected that one but you might expect this one Houston's micro ball experiment what did you make of it I mean I I think it's a really good idea um I've I've long heard the trope that instead of calling it small ball we should actually call it skill ball because the goal is to get as many skilled players on the court who are as tall as possible and yeah it's really hard to find guys who have the skills to be perimeter players while also switching on defense and doing all the things Dallas or, or sorry, the Rockets need. Um, so I, I think it's a very interesting concept. I think it's clearly something that it works in the NBA, whether they have the exact right combination of players. I, I mean, I, I don't think they do, uh, especially with, you know, Russell Westbrook being there instead of a Chris Paul. I think if they had Chris Paul this year, they probably would have looked quite a bit better because it's an extra all-time shooter on the floor rather than an all-time non-shooter. Um, but I, I think it's definitely a, a successful idea. I don't necessarily think they have the right personnel to really pull it off, at least at, at sort of winning a title level of contention. But, I mean, they could certainly run this back and probably will run this back next year and win 50-plus games again. And James Harden will score 40 points a million times and, and it'll be a really fun team to watch. I personally like watching the Rockets. Um, yeah. Which I know is not everyone's cup of tea and, you know, that that's all well and good, but I think they, they are a fun team to watch and they have to do so much uh, creatively to really make it work because they're giving up so much on the size perspective. And, you know, they failed against the Lakers because they weren't doing all those little things they needed to do and on sort of the nth degree extra level to make up for PJ Tucker being their center. Yeah, I was a proponent of it, but uh, I didn't feel like they had a chance to beat the Lakers. I kind of wish they were in the East, man. I think they would have done a little bit better on that side. Definitely. That's a very – I I can actually – I hadn't given that much thought, but I could see them against a bit of a more wing-dominant team or uh, guard-dominant team potentially succeeding more than against you know a team that has essentially two power forwards as their best player. Right, right. Uh, I wanted to shift to the Lakers. Um what do you feel is their best lineup, and does that change depending on if they play the Clippers or Denver? I mean, I, I think it, it probably does depend. Um, it, I, I think what ultimately ends up being the best lineup is their small ball lineup with right. uh, Morris playing the four. 
uh, or the three, or, you know, instead of having a traditional center on the court, I think ultimately that's what they'll turn to in crunch time. Um, but I, I imagine if they play the Nuggets, they will stay more traditionally big just to try and slow down Jokic a little bit and actually make him uh, go against a bigger body um, while keeping, you know, AD fresh, fresher on the defensive end, I suppose. Um, but I think ultimately that's just their best lineup. It just gives as much shooting on the floor as possible. They have LeBron James. They don't need a traditional point guard outside of that. So it's, it's you know, as much shooting as possible, as much defense as possible. Um, they have the right sized players to not end up being too small when they go small. Yeah, what is your projection uh, saying about tomorrow's game, man? Who knows? Maybe there's some gamblers out here listening. <laughs> what, what, what's it telling us? Are you talking Clippers Nuggets or, or yeah, Clippers, uh, yeah, yeah? Well, let's go both. Let's start with uh, Game Seven. I mean, Game Seven. Uh, I I don't have the exact point spread in front of me. It was um, from when I tweeted it out a few days ago. Sixty six percent for the Clippers to win versus thirty four for the Nuggets. So you know, anticipates a, a closer, a little bit slower of a game as, as is pretty typical in Game Sevens. But, you know, probably I'd hope this time if the Clippers get up 16, they're actually able to hold it and don't collapse once. So it's been very entertaining from a fan perspective. Definitely. Um, I personally think they, the Clippers are able to close it out. They are the better team as, as fun as Nuggets are to uh, kind of watch Excel. Uh, and and I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Jokic as a typical analytics guy. Um, <laughs> so... I would love to see you know him and and that team get to the conference. And, and you mentioned CP3 earlier, which is uh, I, think he, I think all analytics. <laughs> I got guys, a checklist I'm going through. Yeah, yeah. CP3 is definitely uh, a big one. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I think the Clippers are just the best team left at this point, um, and, and their struggles are like clearly they're just not all in it once they start losing these leads and they're not able to, to stay focused. Um, there's probably something to the truth of Doc Rivers' team struggling in situations like this, just historically across different rosters. Um, I, I don't know what tactically he, he would need to fix, or maybe he's just not the best motivational coach in the world. But I, I just ultimately think the Clippers are a good enough team that, barring some unforeseen Jokic 40-plus point game, Murray going off for 40-plus points, something like that, I mean, they have enough talent that they should be able to close it out. Um, pretty comfortably yeah and Miami Celtics man that's a tough one to predict um I think it'll go seven I'll take Miami but it's really close man that seems like a really close one I'm exactly with you on that I think it goes seven I think the heat do it in seven I I think it just Jimmy Butler with the way he has that team performing and I don't even, even necessarily think he's been their best player I think Bam and uh Dragic have real arguments for being potentially just as impactful as him throughout these playoffs. But as a leader, I, I think what's really gone understated, or well, now it's very clearly stated, it's just how good he is as, as a leader at motivating these guys. And Pat Riley put a team together that is all a bunch of guys who really care. Um, and, and maybe that's something that, especially yeah. in a weird year like this, gets somewhat underrated. And now that we're seeing so clearly how impactful that can be. Um, it really, I just slightly lean to the heat. I just think they, at the end of the day, have the kinds of guys who will do that extra 1% of work to make it, make it all happen. Not yeah, that the Celtics necessarily don't, of course, but like 
the Heat have it to the nth degree of insanity. Most definitely. Heat culture, heat culture. The bubble has that interesting effect on things, and I think one of them is that while experience always matters, I think you could go with like some younger players and get away with it because you're not in front of 25,000 fans or whatever. Like uh, MPJ's, mm-hmm. MPJ's a great talent, and they're going with him. They probably would have went with him anyway, but we see Horton Tucker with the Lakers, and there's some other examples of that as well. That's a really good point. That's not something I've, I've really thought too much about, but just psychologically, how does playing without fans around change the importance of experience? Um, I, I'm not sure the exact answer. I, I, I think it's somewhat similar to how does having no fans around change how guys are able to motivate themselves? And maybe there's right. something to younger guys who maybe are used to playing in smaller venues because they're more recently in not that AAU or NCAA is necessarily small, but they're, they're more used to those smaller environments and, and they don't really know what a true playoff atmosphere is like necessarily. Maybe there's something to like that they don't build up that pressure in their head simply because they don't know to build it up in their head. Um, and, and maybe that's helping them have slightly better performances than their older counterparts, relatively speaking, or helping to minimize the importance of right. uh, that experience. Right. Have you put any thought into the bubble's effect on basketball, like something that might be understated that people aren't really talking about? Not really. Um, I've, I've mostly been trying to wait for everything to finish up before digging further into coming up with any conclusions, simply because we're still dealing with pretty small sample sizes. Um, so things could change pretty rapidly. For instance, in the WNBA, their bubble it looked like there was a home court advantage for whatever reason throughout 90% of their regular season. And then the last couple of games were all major quote unquote away team blowouts. And they ended up totally even between away team wins and home team wins. So I, I am trying to stay away from making too many real judgment calls on how the bubble is impacting people um, while things are still going on. I think it clearly is helping people shoot better. Exactly why there's a few theories uh, and, and I, you know, they all kind of make sense to me in terms of uh, no fans, larger baselines, better uh, framing of the basket, et cetera. Um, but really, I I've, have tried to stay away from putting too much time into figuring out the effects of the bubble before we actually have all the data, because I'm sure as soon as I try that and come to some conclusion, it'll end up being totally wrong in the next 20 games and not actually be a thing at the end of the day. Jacob, I had Lakers preseason, I had Lakers during the season, I had Lakers in the restart, and I still have the Lakers winning it all. What are your metrics telling you? What, what does your metric agree with me? Almost. I think the Lakers are probably the second highest uh, odds to win. I, I would guess it's either them or the Clippers. I, I personally, in the Clippers, I think they're just a little bit better, and okay. they have a little bit of a deeper team, but... I mean, with the way that both of them have looked in the bubble during the restart, it's certainly clear that the Lakers have done a better job motivating themselves. And I think that could end up being pretty important if it does come down to a game six or a game seven, which I I kind of expect it it will because they're both really great teams. So I I still lean Clippers on that front. I think whoever wins of the two of them should be. Well, well, we got to see first. We got to see first, Jacob. Tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Knock on wood. I mean, if the Clippers get knocked out, I think the Lakers uh, should be pretty heavy favorites. Um, but between the two of them, I, I would lean Clippers. But one of the two of them, 
if I could put money on one of the two of them winning, I probably would. Jacob, uh, what's the future for player impact plus Midas? Are you ever thinking about creating a, a new a new metric, or we're going to stick with this? And uh, what's in the future for you? Of course. So I'm I'm always trying to think of new tools or, or data sets I can put together and put out there that would be beneficial to people who are interested in things like this and interested in doing that extra level of research. Um, on, on the PIPM front, the next thing I want to look into is adding more involving role context to uh, the metric, be it either pre-processing, so somehow accounting for the player's offensive role within the team before I calculate PIPM. So, you know, someone who's a primary creator, things get weighted differently than someone who's a lob finisher. Um, or on the post-processing side, so after you already have PIPM, then adjusting for that sort of role context. And, and I think at this point, we're pretty, there's always a little bit more you can get out of a one number metric, but I think they're pretty close to, uh, at least in their current structure, as good as they'll get. So figuring out what that secondary analysis off of it is, and, and I'm going to specifically be trying to figure that out in regards to how role impacts impact and how we can somehow account for it or adjust for it or project how someone would do in a different role um, just to make it a more useful and more portable metric uh, as a player grows and changes over time. Jacob, great stuff. You're always welcome back on the show. Please let the listeners know where they can find you on social media and everywhere else. Thank you. Uh, uh, my Twitter is at Jacob E. Goldstein, no spaces or anything. Or if you just Google search PIPM, Player Impact Plus to Minus, uh, I assume either my Twitter or my site, winsadded.com, will come up as one of the top results. Um, and that's probably the easiest way. Uh, just search that and, and you'll be able to find everything. Thanks, Jacob. Really appreciate you. Talk soon. Thank you for having me. This was great. There it is. Episode 197 of Combo's Court is in the books. Big thanks to everyone who listens to Combo's Court across the globe. And big shouts to Jacob for joining in. We appreciate you. Combo Nation, let me know how you feel about this episode by dropping a comment right on your Apple Podcast app. Rate and review wherever you listen to Combo's Court. Be on the lookout for episode one. Nine, eight, combo, out.